Good evening, UAW family. Last week, the president of the United Auto Workers made this speech that was somehow both folksy and fiery. When we say our union's back in the fight, we mean it. It's not just big... He was broadcasting from Solidarity House, the UAW's Detroit headquarters. He was about to call a massive strike. We're willing to do what's necessary to win justice by any means necessary. It was one of the most remarkable speeches by a U.S. labor leader in recent memory. Why do you say that? Because uh, we have not seen that degree of militancy and explicit message of fighting for the entire working class um, from a labor leader in a very long time. Barry Eidlin studies organizing at McGill University. He says the UAW's president, Sean Fain, has this way of talking that gets people to pay attention. The part that stood out to me was when he went biblical. In the kingdom of God, no one hoards all the wealth while everybody else suffers and starves. And then went on likening the conditions that auto workers are facing to hell. In the kingdom of God, no one forces others to perform endless, back-breaking work just to feed their families or put a roof over their heads. That world's not the kingdom of God. That world is hell. It's funny, I've heard Sean Fain called Hurricane Fain, and I get that from his language, but then he looks so mild-mannered. He just looks like a middle-aged guy. Yes, he's like your uncle at the barbecue, and then he opens his mouth. In a summer defined by so many strikes, it's worth asking, what exactly makes this auto worker strike one you've got to pay attention to? And I could answer that question a lot of ways. I could tell you this is the first time the UAW has called a strike against all three of the major car manufacturers at once. That's Ford, GM, and Stellantis, the parent company of Jeep and Chrysler. I could tell you that the automotive industry is responsible for 3% of this country's GDP, I could tell you that 13,000 workers have walked off the job already, and it's only a fraction of who could end up on the picket line eventually. But also, just look at what they're asking for. A 40% raise over four years? A 32-hour work week? If it all seems audacious to you, Barry Eidlin says, that's the point. Exactly, right? I think we need to rethink the terms of employment. I think that, that employers have basically been setting the terms of engagement for much of the past half century, right? Where it's sort of basically, you know, we want you to show up to work when we want, when it's practical for us, for as long as we want. And, you know, you should be grateful to have a job is the sort of undertone to that. And now what we see with the AW is like, actually, you know, workers need to have a voice in these basic decisions of how our lives are run. Is the UAW strike the hottest strike of hot strike summer? I'm being cheeky with you. <laughs> um, you know, there's so many to choose from. <laughs> but I think it is it is one that's garnering a lot of headlines. Um, and, and I think it, it, it is one that really has the potential to shift the balance of power in the country in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. Today on the show, why the UAW strike proves that hot strike summer is more than just a season. It's a whole new state of mind. 
I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. Okay, so I want to go back to Sean Fain's speech that he gave. Um, And I want to do that because one of the things that struck me about his speech was that it felt almost like a reality show. Like he did this thing where he was like, we're going to be doing stand-up strikes. We are using a new strategy, the stand-up strike. We will call on select facilities, locals or units to stand up and go on strike. I'm going to tell you like who's going on strike, where and when. And today it will be these three plants. So it's this kind of interesting approach where, <laughs> I mean, I wondered in some ways if like auto workers were watching and being like, am I going on strike? Am I going to find out from this speech? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that is what's happening. There are tens of thousands of auto workers tuning into these live streams and they are fired up when you see in the comment section. So they have really been itching for a fight. And there was a quote from uh, an auto worker, I believe at the Ford assembly plant, the one that got uh, partially called out. The one in Wayne, Michigan. Uh, yes, correct. They said, we, we were the first round draft pick. That's like a place of honor. Yes, exactly. It's not wonder if they're going on strike in a worried sense. It's a wonder if they're going on strike in an excited sense of like, you know, now it's our turn to fight. And what's important to recognize here also is that the ones that aren't going on strike aren't just asleep at the wheel, just showing up to work, right? They're engaging in all kinds of other actions. You know, they're doing solidarity t-shirts, they're doing parking lot rallies, practice picketing. So it's not that the strike is just limited to those plants, right? The key thing to remember from a strategic perspective is that element of instability and surprise. Because the automakers just don't know where the strike may happen next. Exactly. Right. And so we saw reports from auto workers in the aftermath where managers had been trying to anticipate where the strike was going to happen. And they were, you know, moving equipment around, moving product around to try and, uh, you know, game the system, try to sort of, you know, beat the strike. And, you know, they and they were completely caught off guard, right? Uh, Stellantis even went on record saying they were caught off guard. And that cost them, you know, money because, you know, if you're shipping material to a plant in anticipation that another plant is going to be on strike, and then that plant ends up going on strike, you know, all that, all that equipment is sitting idle. The stand-up strike strategy is really about trying to maximize the hurt on the company while minimizing the cost to the workers who are are, are fighting for a good contract. So right now we've got, I think, 13,000 people on strike just about. There's a site in Missouri, that's a GM plant, a Stellantis Center in Toledo, Ohio, a Ford assembly location in Wayne, Michigan. And the auto industry has struck back, right? Like they've announced they're laying off workers. Is that typical? I mean, the automakers have engaged in this kind of punitive behavior before. They shut down these plants, even when they're profitable, to send a message that they can, right? And they have business plans, obviously. They say, you know, well, we want to, you know, transfer production to a more profitable plant or something like that. So it's not just purely to send a message, but there is no question that that message is part of the the reasoning. You know, there's no reason that the 
automakers need to be making these layoffs. They have the money to keep these people employed. And I think that you know what we saw from the UAW's messaging in response to that was pointing that out very clearly. Like they're using you as a game piece. Yes, they're playing with people's lives. The messaging has been very clear here. They've you know shown the chart showing that you know labor is five percent of the cost of vehicle, but then the price has gone up by thirty percent, and then they've spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars on stock buybacks and executive salaries, and then they're coming in crying poverty. Like the numbers just don't add up. Hmm. The plants that are on strike are all over the country, represent all the automakers. My understanding is that it's not typical for the UAW to negotiate with multiple automakers at once. So how did that happen this time around? Absolutely. No, this is a this is another part of Fame's strategy that is uh, is very different, right? Up, uh, you know, starting basically from the birth of auto negotiations in the 1940s, the approach has been one of what's called pattern bargaining where the UAW will pick a target of the big three and negotiate directly with them. And then sort of that agreement with the target company sets the pattern for the other two. Uh, And so they, they create this sort of me too agreement is what it's called. And this time around, Fain has basically said, you're all the target. And number one, that's something new. So the automakers didn't know what to do with that, you know, and sort of created a bit of confusion on the employer side. And it also had the effect of, in a sense, they're able to play the companies off against each other in real time, which we've seen. So one employer will for example, agree to the Juneteenth holiday as a day, as a paid day off. And then they're able to leverage that so that soon after that, the other companies were coming back to the table and saying, okay, 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 we're doing that too. What are the sticking points in the negotiation? Like we've talked about all the things that Sean Fain has said he wants. Is it just about better pay and time off and stuff like that? Or is it more than that? It's way more than that. They, they're talking about the complete elimination of, of tiers in employment. And for listeners who are unfamiliar with that, and what that means is that new hires were brought in at wages, benefit, and working conditions that were substantially lower than those who were already working there. So it creates a have and have not situation. Exactly. So you have groups of workers literally working side by side with each other, except that one group is making, you know, two thirds of the wage, they don't have a pension, they don't have, you know, the same health benefits. So it's a recipe for division. And those, so that that they were introduced in the aftermath of the economic crisis, but in the decades since they have proliferated with the aid of a corrupt and complacent UAW leadership that basically saw no alternative to that. And so Fain campaigned last year in the election on a platform of no corruption, no concessions, no tears. He had a sign behind him when he gave this speech that said no tears. And if you don't know what it means, you'd be like, huh. 
I think the way to frame it is equal pay for equal work. That's sort of a, a way that more people can understand the idea. But Barry says getting the automakers to address the workers' demands is going to be an uphill battle. That's because for decades, the UAW has taken a totally different tack in negotiations. And the big three bosses, they're used to it. I mean, I think you're just the the automakers have just grown so accustomed to getting what they want in these negotiations that they just don't know what to do, right? Like they're 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 baffled by the fact that the UAW is daring to ask for things. Which means we could be seeing this play out for a long time. They're just not used to having to actually make a case. And I think that's really what's behind a lot of the hubris you're seeing on the management side, right? Where, you know, they didn't think it was a problem that the Stellantis lead negotiator was joining the auto negotiations via Zoom from his second home in Mexico, right? Like at a resort. (laughs) You couldn't make it up, really. It's the signs that they're just not used to actually having to make a case. They just sort of feel that they can sort of say what they want and people just accept it. And so now that you actually have a UAW membership and leadership that is actually, you know, pushing back, it's really exposing these sort of gaps in their reasoning. When we come back, the story behind this strike and what it means for all the other strikes that are only getting longer. Barry Eidlin says it's tempting when you tell the story of this UAW strike to focus on the guy leading it, Sean Fain. And that's because he's been fighting to be more aggressive at the negotiating table for years now. He was always a black sheep of a sort at the UAW headquarters. The bigger story, though, that we need to understand beyond Sean Fain is the movement that made Sean Fain possible. And that's a decades-long rank-and-file reform movement in the UAW that's taken various forms, the most recent of which is called Unite All Workers for Democracy, UAWD. But it goes way further back than that. Uh, You know, in the 1980s, there was a movement called New Directions into the 90s. Um, So there's been these rank and file movements that have opposed the direction that the UAW was taking towards a more concessionary approach where they sort of have an idea of working in, in partnership with management. So labor management partnership was sort of the calling card of the UAW administration. And this was enforced in the UAW by uh, a leadership caucus known as the Administration Caucus. And basically, if you wanted to get ahead in the UAW, you had to join the Administration Caucus and you had to take direction from the Administration Caucus leadership. In order to break up that one-party state, you needed this bottom-up movement. To like overthrow the people who've been in charge? Yeah, literally. Yes, yes. But as is often the case with one party states, you sort of get this sort of corruption that sets in. And so over the past five, six years, there's this massive corruption scandal that erupted in the union and 13 of the top officials, including two presidents, ended up doing prison time. And they were caught literally, you know, it's just the most textbook 
cartoonish forms of corruption you can think of. It's like the champagne, cigars, luxury, vacations. Literally taking union dues to have these things. Exactly. And then like literally taking company payoffs in exchange for contract concessions. It explains why the contracts maybe weren't as aggressive before. Because they were literally getting paid off. That ultimately led to federal government intervention. Fortunately, there was a group of this UAWD, United Workers for Democracy, was able to sort of engage with the process here and uh, get the UAW leadership to agree to a referendum that would switch the way that top leadership was determined from a convention system to a direct election of top leaders. They literally had a campaign of like one person, one vote, which is just so interesting because of the way it resonates in other ways. Yes. And, you know, UAWD, they were talking about challenging the administration caucus, trying to create a, you know, a multi-party system, if you will, in, in the union. Um, so they were the challenger party, but they're a tiny operation, right? We're talking, you know, like three digits, you know, we're talking like, you know, maybe a few hundred people. In, in a union of, you know, 400,000. They literally didn't have enough people to run a full slate to challenge the administration caucus leadership. They were able to field a partial slate. They were able to convince Sean Fain to run for president. And you know, nobody anticipated that they would had a shot. And when the votes were counted last fall, there was this shock that actually every position that UAWD contested, they won. So basically what ended up happening was that the UAWD candidates ended up forming a majority. And now here we are on strike. And the important thing that we're seeing here that I think ties to sort of the other stuff that's been getting probably more headlines, you know, in terms of labor, the things like Amazon organizing and Starbucks organizing and is that we're seeing a revival of independent worker-led organizing that cuts across these different settings and these vastly different industries. And that's a necessary precursor to any kind of serious revival of the labor movement that's been lacking for, for, for many years. And the way that you're seeing this sort of spread across industries, right? So there's been advances over the past 40 years here and there, but they've been isolated. And they haven't really had these spillover effects. And the fact that you're sort of seeing this, these spillover effects now suggests that we could be seeing something different now. It's too early to say for sure, but it's definitely something that we have not seen in a while. Can we talk about some of the stickier issues when it comes to the labor movement these days? Like, I'm thinking about you know the Amazon union, which has been you know, had recognition, but then didn't get recognition everywhere it tried. It's it's just been having trouble. Starbucks still fighting workers there. So what do those stories tell you? I mean, it tells me that there's been important progress that we've seen, but there's a long, long way back up. So we need to keep the forward movement that we've seen for labor in broader perspective, right? So the National Labor Relations Board issued a report earlier this year about how new organizing was up 57% over last year, right? But 
the previous year was a you know real low point. And even in the past decade, we're talking about 1,400 union representation elections. That's compared to you know 3,000 elections per year in the 1990s, which isn't exactly remembered as a high point for labor organizing, and versus like the nine, 10,000 elections per year we saw in the 1970s, right? So that gives you some perspective. Yeah, and it looks like a lot of strikes right now, but you've written about how <laughs> actually if we return to the strike rates of like 2018, labor would be kind of clawing back to the rates of the late Ronald Reagan era, which was not exactly a high watermark. So it's like we're 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 getting there, but uh, you know, it's just it's it's as you said, it's a long way. It's a long way. And yes, if you're on your way up, you have to pass by those previous low points that you pass on the way down, right? That's one way to think about about it. But I think that um, what we're seeing now is the energy, this sort of rank and file energy, this sort of grassroots energy um, running into some of the hard constraints that workers face every day. And that's particularly when it comes to labor law, right? So the incentives for employers to bargain with unions, even once they get recognized, are actually um, a opposite of any incentive to actually reach an agreement, right? In U.S. labor law, once a union is recognized, an employer has a duty to bargain with the union, but there's no duty to actually reach agreement. And if the employer can stretch out negotiations in Stonewall for up to a year, then there is an opening for what's called a decertification election, which basically means that the employer can get rid of the union. Hmm. So we could just forget about all this. Right. And you contrast that to what most provinces, up, I'm talking to you from Montreal and Quebec, um, which is in Canada, and most provinces in Canada have what's called first contract arbitration. And so in those cases, the employer has an obligation to bargain once a union is recognized. And if there is no agreement reached by one year, from the date of certification, then an arbitrator can be brought in to impose an agreement. What a difference. Yeah. And because the delays are almost invariably a result of employer intransigence, there tends to be a punitive aspect to that, where the arbitrator is much more likely to impose an agreement that's more favorable to the workers. That'll motivate you. Exactly. And, you know, the, the, the important thing to recognize here is that that almost never happens. First contract arbitrations almost never happen. Because who would want that? Yeah. But the fact that that's the end point means that employers have a much greater incentive to actually reach an agreement. When will we know if this summer or really even the last few years was a turning point for labor? That's a very good question. I'll have to get back to you on it. No, um, <laughs> I think um, if we're sort of still seeing this energy next year, and then if it keeps growing and growing, and if it keeps spreading to different sectors, I think that's really what's going to be key. We have a lot of the necessary ingredients in place for that to happen. And so I think that we're in a place now where if next year or the year after we're in something that is much more like a true upsurge, we will be able to go back to where we are now in 2023 and see 
that the key ingredients were in place. Barry, I am super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me, Mary. Barry Eidlin is an associate professor of sociology at McGill University. He's also the author of Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.